If your business is tired of paying unpredictable and high phone bills, do what I did. Switch to Zoom Call's cloud business phone service. You'll pay the same low amount every month, no matter how many calls you have in the U.S. and Canada. And Zoom Calls has a really cool feature called voicemail drops. Whenever you reach someone's voicemail, just say hi in their name and then click a couple of buttons on your phone to leave your pre-recorded message. It saves both your voice and your time. Check out zoomcalls.com. That's zoomcalls.com. I think you'll love it. Attention, you're listening to the Todd Huff Radio Show, America's home for conservative, not bitter talk radio. Be advised that the content of this program has been documented to prevent and even cure liberalism, and listening may cause you to lean to the right. Here's your conservative, but not bitter host, Todd Huff. Well, that is right. You are listening here to the home of conservative, not bitter talk. Yes, I am your host, Todd Huff. As always, you can email me your thoughts, opinions, adoration, praise. Todd at ToddHuffShow.com. Watch the program live or on demand on our website and find out that, yes, in fact, I do have a face for radio. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining us. I want to start this morning. I want to start today by talking about the speech Trump gave regarding the coronavirus legislation, regarding the legislation for, well, all the, the, the – the spending. There's actually two bills, I guess. And Trump addressed this um, from the podium last night. And I want to play this. This is a couple of minutes long. But Trump goes completely after um, Congress here. Trump goes, I mean, after these folks. And this includes everyone that voted for this. There's a handful of senators, of course. A hand co- handful of folks that did not vote for this this bill, and Trump is basically calling them out. And what Trump's calling them out for, I want to, I want to, I guess, paint the picture here. Trump is saying, "Look, okay, let me pause. There are there are some that are against this legislation because this is um, well, we're talking massive amounts of money. We're talking about." Um, just basically the government taking from what amounts to future generations to to give money to its citizens today. So Trump's not addressing it on that on that level, that ideological level. And I'm not going to get into that portion of it today, whether or not um, – I mean obviously the, the as conservatives, the government should not be, we believe – um, the government should not be in the business of redistributing wealth and spending more money than we should have. And um, there, there, there's clearly defined constitutional responsibilities and so forth. And I don't want to get into that aspect of it today. I want to start with the assumption that something was going to pass Congress for COVID relief. Now, it's also worth noting that something has been debated in Congress since basically this summer. We're looking at, I don't know, maybe six months of this. Six months of this where politicians basically were playing politics with how they were going to intervene. Now, 
I'll also say, I'll also say that of all the times the government has talked about a bailout, um, it's the most understandable to me, and this is not an endorsement of it. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. What I am saying is that of all the times that the uh, government has, has considered things like this, and again, not an endorsement, but it seems to me the most logical of, of times when the government is the reason that people um, are in the positions they are. You could say COVID is the reason, but it's really our response to COVID. Governor's response to COVID primarily, shutting down businesses. Um, you know, there's, there's a fine line between educating the public and scaring the living daylights out of people because they don't uh, – with, with COVID, you know, with, with COVID fears and so forth. And telling people at first don't wear a mask as Fauci did. I'm, I, it's amazing to me how many people just gloss over this. Fauci said don't wear a mask. It's largely symbolic. Then he came out to tell us the reason he said that was because the people on the front lines need the masks. The people on the front lines need the masks and – he knew that they needed them more than us, the regular folks. So he basically lied to us. He admitted to lying to us, if you follow this line of logic, saying that he we didn't need the masks because he was trying to prevent uh, the, the, a shortage of masks for people on the front lines. So then he said, now, yeah, you really do need them. And this evolution of a mask has taken – it has gone through this – well, it's, it's, it's gone through an evolution. And so now we have this – where you you hear folks now commonly say, wear your damn mask. That's the way that they communicate this in there. They're upset if they don't see you. They think that you're spreading. You're spreading this even though there's, I mean, negligible evidence of spread from asymptomatic carriers. We're all supposed to be wearing this because we're told that we're infecting people even when we don't we don't know it and but, but the point is the reaction right shutting down bars and gyms and restaurants and telling people how many folks they can have over for, the, for thanksgiving shutting down shutting down in many ways businesses in the way that businesses can operate anyway trump um if there's ever a case to be made that the government has caused well, the government caused this is what governments do by the way they find a problem that doesn't uh, well, they find a problem or sometimes they even find a problem that doesn't exist. And I'm not saying COVID's fake. Don't misunderstand. But sometimes they find problems that don't exist. Sometimes they find a situation that does exist. And then they typically, by, by intervening, make it make it worse. That's why Trump's out there saying the solution cannot be worse or the cure can't be worse than the problem. Anyway, so we have this bill passed. But the problem, uh, again, we're starting with the assumption that we are going to have a COVID bill. This, this something, something like this is going to be passed. So both houses have signed this. They've sent it to Trump, and Trump says he doesn't directly say he's going to veto this, but he certainly goes after it pretty hard and has some really bad things to say about it. And he starts attacking all of the other spending that they've attached to this bill. And I love, I mean, I I love this, by the way, not the bill. I love what Trump is. What he's doing here. So let's listen to this. I can't get into this too lengthy right now because we have a, a guest this morning that uh, we're going to talk with, one of our regular guests, Matt Lamb from the College Fix. But I wanted to start with this and just share a little of this if, if you did not have the pleasure of listening to this last night. 
Throughout the summer, Democrats cruelly blocked COVID relief legislation in an effort to advance their extreme left-wing agenda and influence the election. Then, a few months ago, Congress started negotiations on a new package to get urgently needed help to the American people. It's taken forever. However, the bill they are now planning to send back to my desk is much different than anticipated. It really is a disgrace. For example, among the more than 5,000 pages in this bill, which nobody in Congress has read because of its length and complexity, it's called the COVID relief bill, but it has almost nothing to do with COVID. This bill contains $85.5 million for assistance to Cambodia, $134 million to Burma, $1.3 billion for Egypt and the Egyptian military, which will go out and buy almost exclusively Russian military equipment, $25 million for democracy and gender programs in Pakistan, $505 million to Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Panama. $40 million for the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., which is not even open for business. $1 billion for the Smithsonian and an additional $154 million for the National Gallery of Art. Likewise, these facilities are essentially not open. $7 million for reef fish management, $25 million to combat Asian carp, $2.5 million to count the number of amberjack fish in the Gulf of Mexico, a provision to promote the breeding of fish in federal hatcheries, $3 million in poultry production technology, $2 million to research the impact of down trees, $566 million for construction projects at the FBI. The bill also allows stimulus checks for the family members of illegal aliens, allowing them to get up to $1,800 each. This is far more than the Americans are given. Despite all of this wasteful spending and much more, the $900 billion package provides hardworking taxpayers with only $600 each in relief payments. And not enough money is given to small businesses, and in particular restaurants, whose owners have suffered so grievously they were only given a deduction for others to use in business their restaurant for two years. This two-year period must be withdrawn, which will allow the owners to obtain financing and get their restaurants back in condition. Congress can terminate it at a much later date, but two years is not acceptable. It's not enough. Congress found plenty of money for foreign countries, lobbyists, and special interests while sending the bare minimum to the American people who need it. It wasn't their fault. It was China's fault, not their fault. I am asking Congress to amend this bill and increase the ridiculously low $600 to $2,000 or $4,000 for a couple. I'm also asking Congress to immediately get rid of the wasteful and unnecessary items from this legislation and to send me a suitable bill 
or else the next administration will have to deliver a COVID relief package, and maybe that administration will be me, and we will get it done. Thank you very much. Okay, so there it is. That's the portion I wanted to hear or have you hear. And he's, I mean, you could say he's he's showing his hand that he's going to maybe pocket veto, uh, maybe veto this. Who knows exactly? But basically saying if you don't fix this, this is ridiculous. And he listed a whole bunch of items that uh, are in this bill that have nothing to do with, with COVID. I mean, so, so we've got a, multiple, a myriad of issues here. One is whether or not the government should be engaged in this, and that's a discussion that we – that's important. Um, I think for the, the sake of this, it's a foregone conclusion that government is going to do something. I do I do believe that. Um, so once you get to the point where you say the government is going to do something, then the question is, okay, if that's unavoidable, what is the government supposed to do? Why are we – studying fish and hatcheries and all this stuff in the piece of covid legislation if money grows on trees Rand paul asked this if money grows on trees why don't we just why don't we give people more if it's growing on trees and it doesn't matter well i mean that that is the question why why stop at six hundred dollars per person why if it grows on trees and it just you can get it wherever you need it however you much you need of it just Go for it. Go for the gusto. Trump's saying it needs to be $2,000 a person instead of 600 and Congress needs to fix these things. Pelosi's, I don't, Pelosi's out there talking nonsense, blaming people of faith or some such thing, anti-science. I don't know what Pelosi's saying. It's delusional. I got the comment queued. I just don't know if we've got time to play it. But anyway, that's where we are with COVID relief. Wanted to share that off the top. Um <laughs> You know they've worked. They've worked to come to this deal, and then Trump's now saying, "Hey, you know this is this is unacceptable," and this has called all politicians who voted for this out of both parties. And of course, the politicians, the, the senators, and the representatives will say, "Well, what did you want us to do? This is the only thing we could get passed." Think of it. Let that sink in for a minute. We don't think our system's broken. I mean, I don't mean the system itself as created by the founders. I mean the people that we have placed there in our government. If this is the best they can come up with, folks, just throwing money out the window, giving it away to folks that have nothing at all to do. And I know this is the way, oh, Todd, this is the way politics are done. Why? Why do we accept some of these things? Why do we accept some of these uh, these things is fundamentally true that are true, uh, truly insane. This is not how you would run your, your family, your business. I know we've got representatives from all over the country. I know some of these folks are radical socialists, but it is not. That doesn't represent the, the, the majority of the American people. That's not what the majority, that's not what American people believe. And when this is exposed as it's been, and kudos to Trump for doing this, I say, um, this is a good thing. Maybe Trump will, if he's on his way out here, which is another story as well, <clears throat> but if he's on his way out, he may say, I'm going to take the whole, the whole swap down with me. Who knows? Quick timeout is in order. Come back, share my conversation uh, with Matt Lamb, assistant editor, The College Fix. Um, enjoy my conversations with him. I think you will too. Sit tight. Be back here in just a minute.
Journalism and education are two things that we spend a lot of time on or they come up frequently on this program. And so we've started started a recurring interview series with Matt Lamb. He's the assistant editor at The College Fix. You can find out more about them at thecollegefix.com. Matt, welcome back to the program. How are you today, sir? Good, good. Thanks for having me back. Well, I appreciate what you do, and I think it's important. I think addressing, uh, you know, just what real journalism is, and especially in the college sphere, that is a, I mean, you got a double whammy that you're dealing with there. So I admire greatly what you're trying to accomplish. So let's talk today about an article um, that um, that's, that you've posted at the College Fix, talking about um, a teenager in the state of Maine, a student athlete, football player, I believe. Um, and he committed suicide, um, and he, according to his, his parents, he has cited um, loneliness from COVID. So I guess give us a quick summary of what happened here, and then I want to talk about this a little bit. Sure. So um, Spencer Smith was a main teen, um, and he, um, he, he did commit suicide. Um, a couple things worth noting, it doesn't seem that he himself actually ever had coronavirus, but the fact that his school was on a much uh, reduced uh, a reduced format, um, so I think he was only going to school like one day a week, and he was a lineman, and um, even though the main Principals Association at one time, these doctors had put together guidelines and determined that there could safely be a high school football season, um, I'm out here in Indiana. We've, we've had a high school football season, um, you know, full 11-on-11 tackle. Uh, the governor of Maine intervened and said there could not be a high school football season. Um, some of the schools put together a 7-on-7 league. Um, but what this is is it's essentially like flag football. So it's really just quarterbacks, receivers, and one lineman. So imagine you're a teen and you spend your whole summer lifting weights, you're, you're eating right, running, doing all these things. You're, you know, you're a big guy, you're a lineman, and the governor of your state just comes out and says, sorry, no football season for you. Um, and that's, this really, according to his parents, really kind of led to him um, you kind of going into this downward spiral um, where he kind of felt like a lot of things that mattered to him had been taken away. He couldn't regularly see his friends. Um, you know, I'm sure in Maine there were other restrictions on other fun things he could have done um, because of coronavirus, and that, according to his parents, ultimately led to, to his suicide. Uh, I think it was several weeks ago at this point. Yeah, it, it's it's so sad. And to act like uh, our, our government, uh, the media as well, as though the only – concern with coronavirus or, or covid is um you know the the spread of the disease which is of course something to be concerned with and i'm not just flippantly mentioning that but there are other other factors here as as well it makes me wonder to what extent these sorts of things are happening um around the nation as well are there other reports or stories about this that that you've um that you that are similar or that you've seen a similar theme that have popped up in your on your radar? Right. So I can't say I've specifically seen other suicides, um, but we've certainly seen reports of teens um, facing increase in anxiety and depression. Um, and some of that was happening before coronavirus, to be fair. Um, but I think this has certainly accelerated it. Back in August, actually, I interviewed a sports psychologist who said, you're going to see more 
anxiety and depression from students. Um, <clears throat> I think this is one of the underreported stories. I know there are, there are unfortunately probably more stories like this out there, whether it's suicide or it's just depression. And I think I think parents realize this. Um, his dad said, like, we, you know, at least let the parents and the kids choose That's if right. they want to go back to band, if they want to go back to theater, if they want to go back to sports. And, of course, we know that this is a common theme for for years. How many times have educators and public health officials and community leaders said, you know, sports is a great way, band's a great way, theater's a great way for kids to stay away from trouble, to stay out of drugs and and other other trouble or to improve their mental health. I mean, we, we've heard plenty of times the benefit of structured activities, being around peers in a positive way, learning how to practice and learning how to be accountable to one another. And then, you know, unfortunately, politicians just kind of take this away from students without any real thought into the, the consequences. And these are these are as bad of consequences as you as you can uh, as you can possibly have. I, this is not something I've seen mentioned much or even acknowledged really in the media at large. Why do you think that's the case? Or am I correct, I guess, first, and, and why would you think that's the case? Right. Um, you know, and so I want to give a shout-out to this great reporter. I think her name is Jackie Mundry, who went to talk to the the uh, parents. This is real journalism, and I really think she did a great job, and she posted the video of the interviews. I think it's because it's so... We, the, the, a lot of the, the media um, supports, we know, government intervention and lockdowns. And it's very hard for a lot of people in the media, and there's some good ones, like I just mentioned, to acknowledge that there are harms from coronavirus lockdowns. There are harms from coronavirus. Neither, neither you or I are denying that. Um, but a lot of times there are not these discussions of, of trade-offs. It's either we have to lock everything down or everyone is going to die. And there's no, there just hasn't been a lot of discussion about how can we keep things as normal as possible in a safe way, but ultimately people have to make that decision for themselves. Um, and just, I, I just don't think the media want, they're so focused on how can they blame Trump or how can they blame you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida, or how can they blame this person or that person? But there isn't enough of focus on the human effects of government policies. Hmm. You're exactly right. And, you know, I we talk about the media uh, on here, of course, that it's it's a regular theme. And, you know, it's, you're right. It, it They want to put political blame at the foot of usually a conservative or a Republican um, because if only we had spent more money, if only we had better policy, if only this or that, then all of the world's problems would, of course, go away. But that's, of course, not uh, dealing in reality, uh, the world that we live in. Um, and, and bad things happen no matter what. I mean, we can't – you can't control everything. So this, this idea, though, that media companies or newsrooms are advancing – an actual narrative to where they're literally, as we've seen this with CNN with Project Veritas, basically planning how do we, you know, take the news that's out there, how do we get rid of the stuff that we don't want to talk about, and then focus on the things that we want to drive home this narrative. I mean, how big of a problem is this, Matt? Explain, I guess, the level of, of uh, problem that we're dealing with here. Right. I, I think it's a huge problem. So one thing we've covered a lot, obviously, because we're generally college-focused, um, is uh, 
you know, the reopenings, how different colleges have approached reopening. And there were plenty of stories I remember seeing in July and August about how if colleges came back, there was going to be this, this, this massacre. I mean, students were going to be dying left and right. And, and all the, and the, the, uh, the education groups and the teacher unions and the, were worried about, uh, you know, all these things with coronavirus. But then you haven't really seen the follow-up articles in December looking back. And, and we've covered it. We've covered and we've said, okay, this is what was predicted in August. And now it's December. It's four months later. We're at the end of the first semester back. What happened? Um, there's really just not an interest, I feel, in, in, in higher ed media in covering, um, in covering, you know, what happened. Today I got an email from the higher ed uh, publication that said, uh, you know, well, for actually most colleges, they did admit, uh, for most colleges, uh, they handle coronavirus well. So I, I give the hat tip to them. But not for this one student who had a bad experience. Yeah. Um, so it's every every even if they do cover the positive, there's got to be that one spin of here's that one person, and the the student survived mm-hmm. who had a bad experience with coronavirus. Yeah. Um, out of how many college students are there at any time? Hundreds of thousands, I yeah. guess. So yeah, it's my answer to that question. Well, it's it's just remarkable. You look at this; it's almost like a scorched earth approach. You know, this is going to be the, the the end of civilization as we know it. They march towards us. They proclaim it every day. They scream it from the rooftops and the mountaintops. And then, if it turns out not to be the case, they don't say, "Up, oh, we overreacted to that," or you know, that that's not really what happened. They just move on to the next thing, and they stir up such this frenzy, this this frenzy in the minds of many of the people that follow this stuff and take it seriously. But I just, it's one of the reasons I just, I can't take these folks seriously, pushing these narratives relentlessly. But you're right, COVID, coronavirus, we have problems that extend well beyond, and we're not, again, minimizing the health concerns. That's obviously the main concern here. But there are certainly other things, economies, uh, you know, small business problems, uh, people being employed. And then, of course, now with, with mental health and uh, with this terrible situation with this this young man who took his life from what appears to be uh, loneliness due to coronavirus. So, Matt, we appreciate what you do. It's always good to have you on. We'll have you back on again soon, and I look forward to hearing what other craziness you uh, uncover in the weeks to come. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. That's Matt Lamb, assistant editor the College Fix. You can find out more about Matt and the work that they do at the College Fix by visiting thecollegefix.com. Welcome back. So I want to mention, too, that we just um, – the, the College Fix interview series is brought to you by our friends. This is something that we've just um, – they've, they've, they've come on to be um, the sponsor for that, Apprentice University. And this is you, – you'll learn more about them in the days and weeks to come as we share with you what they do. But this is um, this is an alternative – Apprentice University is an alternative to going uh, to sending your child to college, or if you're a student going going to college, you're actually able to learn on the job. You're able to learn on the job, and uh, they've got some classroom activities as well, and some other things that they do at Apprentice University to help 
prepare you for actually the workforce, right? Instead of taking underwater basket weaving and that sort of stuff. Um, and, and so I'm, they do some really, uh, some really cool things, have some innovative approaches. And so Apprentice University is uh, making these interviews with the College Fix possible. And of course, you, you listen to the College Fix and you hear some of the things that students are subjected to at, you know, in, in college. Um, and you, it's worth thinking about the alternatives. It's worth reviewing what makes the most sense. What does my, you know, what do I as a student, what does my, my child as a student need to learn? So uh, how much of the stuff that they're taught at college is actually truly preparing someone to, to work in you know, a certain field versus indoctrinating them or trying to, uh, in some cases, challenge their conservative values or, and or their faith in, in at least some instances. I had that personal experience when I went to Butler. So anyway, Apprentice University brought, uh, brought that interview series to you and again, um, I'm grateful to them for doing that. Check them out if you're looking at going to, to college, if you want some alternatives to learn hands-on through an apprentice program on the job. Good group of people there, solid group of people, very uh, very committed, very uh, rooted in faith. Apprentice University, check them out. I want to read here something else that's on on my radar and on yours as well. This is at thenationalfile.com. Now, look, I'm just telling you I'm reporting this. You, you can determine how much of this is legit or not. Um, this is pertaining to the election, all the, the controversy. We, we've got hearings still that are out there. Um, we've got some state legislatures, uh, legislators who are ready to, if they you know, can have enough evidence prevented, uh, presented in these hearings, they're, they're prepared to actually you know, get – decertify their election results the question is is there enough of these folks and the question is are there enough states there's a lot of states still in question and there's a lot of folks talking about this in a variety of states but again how far will this get Um, if you're like me you're wondering you know how many times have we been told just wait until this happens or that happens and we still do have time but it's not a lot of time right i mean this this has to happen some folks will say it's too late because the Electoral College has already voted. Other folks will say, well, on January 6th, Congress still has to approve that. And some say that President, or excuse me, Vice President Pence, Vice President Pence can actually take a step, and they say it has to be done today. And as I'm looking at the clock here and thinking how I want to talk about this, I want to take a break. And I hate to do that to you, but I want to take a break. This is something that, again, is reported by the National File. Um, I think we'll have – I'll have uh, Pedals post this to at least to Facebook um, sometime today, and you can check this out. But headline exclusive, it says, White House memo details how Pence card can save Trump's presidency on December 23rd. So we'll talk about this. I'm not trying to give you – false hope i'm just simply providing you with information there are some things that still have to be done some say it's a foregone conclusion others say not so fast there's a lot of questions people have 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 now been on record more and more house republicans are coming out and some senators have apparently told these house republicans as well that they're going to challenge the results of uh, some of these states that are presented to them on january 6th which opens up 
debate in both houses. This can continue, depending upon how they do this, this can continue for some time. They can debate up to two hours, but that's per, as I understand it, per challenge. So they can drag this on for a little bit, I mean, not uh, not for weeks on end, but maybe a couple of days. I don't know, depending upon how they do this, maybe even a week, possibly. I don't know. But some folks are out there saying Pence has a big decision here today, and I'll talk with you about this on the other side of the break. But you can sit tight. We'll do that when we get back. You're listening to Conservative Not Better Talk. I am your host, Todd Huff, back in just a minute. Welcome back. I want to get to this quickly. And again, I don't want to give you false hope, but there are things that still have to be done for these election results to be actually approved and accepted and for Biden, in spite of what the media tells you, to actually be uh, the true, unquestioned president-elect. There's some steps that have to be taken and undergone. And so here we're looking at this piece in the national file. Again, headline, exclusive White House memo details how, quote, Pence card, end quote, can save Trump's presidency on December 23rd. That's today, a White House memo that details how Vice President Mike Pence is legally required to reject electoral college votes from contested states. And so this is what it says. Sources in the Trump administration confirmed to the national file that President Donald Trump's most vocal advocates within the White House have determined that both U.S. Code and the Constitution contain language that requires Vice President Mike Pence to reject unlawful electoral college certificates, but Pence must act by no later than Wednesday, December 23rd. The drafters of this White House memo believe that the federal check to the state's elections resides with the vice president, Mike Pence, in his role as president of the Senate. Remember, this reminds me, remember when Sarah Palin years ago said that one of the responsibilities of the vice president was to be president of the Senate, and she was laughed at. This is factually true, but she was laughed at as though this is a person that has no clue. She thinks is the vice president's running the Senate. That was how that was portrayed. Anyway. Um, where are we here? Additionally, Pence has the sole power to determine whether to reject impermissible states of electors. However, Pence is legally required to do this on the fourth Wednesday in December, which this year falls on December 23rd today. National Files sources in the White House indicated that the memo was requested by those in the president's inner circle who are most keen to see the 2020 election and the ensuing fallout administered in a transparent in as transparent of a manner as possible. They also indicate that the push to find a path to verify the 2020 election's integrity is not coming solely from the White House, but also comes from across numerous agencies in the administration. The emergence of the memo could mark a decided shift in roles for Pence. Our sources explain since the days immediately following the, the election, Pence has remained relatively silent compared to President Trump and his legal team. The revelation that Pence alone can reject allegedly fraudulent electoral college certificates shifts the spotlight from President Trump and congressional leaders significantly by putting President Trump's electoral destiny squarely on Pence's 
shoulders. So basically, I can't read all of this, but essentially the argument here is Pence has the he's required says this argument if you believe this if you believe this Pence is required to reject states with contested electors and then send those back to the states and say hey you got until January 6th to to fix this and there's seven states that have done this right we've got Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada as Trump says Arizona and New Mexico these are the ones where there's two sets of electors. Some folks say, well, one of them's not a true set of electors. There's a whole bunch of arguments that will come from this. But the bottom line here is that Pence can, can do this as the one that actually opens the votes and counts them in the, in the Senate um, can say, look, I don't know what you – know, I, got, I got dueling electors here. What do you want me to do with this? You know, fix your problem. Remedy your problems, individual states, which really is what should happen. These states should do this. They should have been doing this all along. Some of them are going through the process, but you know, in a lot of in a lot of ways, this is kind of uh, designed to run out the clock. That's the strategy of the Democrats: is to run the clock out. But something should be done about this. Fix it. If if the if you have an investigation and determine that there's not enough fraud to overturn the election results. So be it, I guess, assuming that that's done and, and, it's, and it's legitimate. It's not just a dog and pony show. Um, or, you know, say that it was fraudulent and you don't and you don't believe the results of your election. And uh, because of the fraud and the mischief and the mayhem and the deliberate, intentional deceit and voting machines and all the stuff that we've been subjected to listening to. And Congress, the individual state legislatures can say, we're taking that responsibility back and we're going to send a slate of electors that we believe most accurately depicts how our state voted. And you can you can give them all to Trump, all to Biden, you can split them, whatever. Anyway, that's what uh, some folks are holding on to. Um, I'm just sharing that, not predicting it, just passing that along. Quick time out is in order. When I come back and wrap up, you're listening to Conservative Not Bitter Talk. I am your host, Todd Huff, back in a minute. Welcome back. So, really quickly, again, there's things happening in the states. We've got Georgia looking to overturn, uh, to go through the process, possibly overturning electors. We, I mean, this is happening in, in multiple states. Not sure, again, how much traction this will get. We'll have to follow this. And we talked about Pence and apparently this memo that's allegedly been circulated at the White House. All that stuff, I mean, there's, uh, we'll have to see how this plays out. We're on a short, uh, shorter timetable than some folks would want us to believe. But anyway, I want to take a moment. This is the last uh, episode of the week, last episode of the week as we get to Christmas. And I just want to tell each and every one of you to have a Merry Christmas, to wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Um, I, it, I'm honored to be able to come on here every day and to to share with you. It's it's something um, that I look forward to, and I'm I'm very grateful for this this opportunity. So I wish you and your family a Merry Christmas, and thank you so much for listening. SDG guys, God bless you. Enjoy Christmas. I'll be back on Monday. Merry Christmas, SDG. 